At 192 pages, The Will to See, Dispatches from a World of Misery and Hope, is by my count the 27th book translated into English by Bernard-Henri Lévy, or BHL as he's come to be known by most European and American readers. His scholarship, and in recent years documentary filmmaking, spans more than five decades as a moral philosopher and public intellectual. BHL is well known for many reasons. A close friend of former French president Nicolas Sarkozy, a Parisian philosophy professor who in 1968 helped launch the New Philosopher's School, which offered an uncompromising intellectual critique of Marxist socialist dogmas gaining traction in late 1960s France. A bridge and a mentor to many young thinkers and a writer whose work has been widely read throughout the Western world. And in the last two decades, one could make the case that his influence has grown as BHL has chosen to spend down some of the capital he's garnered by directing the West's gaze toward war-torn lands where victims are caught in the crossfire. He was an early advocate for intervention in Darfur, for helping the Kurds, for protecting Libyan rebels in Benghazi, for helping civilians in Syria, Bosnia, and in Kiev. Combining moral passion rooted in his own clear-eyed philosophical understanding of anthropology and his Judaism, BHL, in his latest book, brings us into closer contact with eight hotspots he visited with a film crew in 2020 and early 2021. He sits down today to talk with Ed Luce, U.S. national editor for the Financial Times, an incredibly prolific journalist in his own right. In addition to three journalism decades in Geneva, London, and Washington, Ed previously served as a speechwriter to U.S. Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers, and his most recent book is The Retreat of Western Liberalism. The new book he and BHL discuss provides snapshots into eight places, Nigeria, Syrian and Iraqi Kurdistan, Ukraine, Somalia, Bangladesh, Lesbos, Greece, Libya, and finally Afghanistan. I'll confess to liking BHL even more after reading this book and subsequently seeing the documentary, The Will to See. He's a complex human being, the son of a timber company founder whose wealth has allowed BHL to persevere with a kind of uniquely French creativity over the years and his love for true ideas. In the opening pages, he writes, I was lucky enough to be born of a father two times a hero. And while it isn't in the conversation you're about to hear, He expounded on this idea in a French embassy event with Jeff Goldberg. BHL's father twice enlisted to serve his country, and on both occasions, he really stepped up in the fight. First, as an international brigade member in Spain as an 18-year-old in July 1938, and then again in May 1944 as part of the anti-Nazi resistance. His father's example of moral courage, the way he answered the call of duty and scaled steep ravines to cover the Polish infantry and advance his own country's flag, gave BHL something he's taken through his own life in the world of ideas, a willingness to try, not merely to conform to the pessimism of the world which says that people in faraway lands are unlucky and there's nothing we can do about it. For BHL, now late in his life and career, the work of doing good always comes back to telling the truth, both assessing it and getting it out there. He charges a rising generation of journalists to unceasingly question the lies society is always erecting and to reach behind those lines. Listen to his description of a contemporary journalist's role. The role is considerable because the whole world is organized in order to prevent the truth to be said. 
I can say that. There are so many forces who prevent the truth to be said. There are so many actors who want to lie. There are so many actors who have an interest to lie. So the work of a journalist, which consists in going behind the lines in order to take, uh, to bite in the things, in order to bring back the truth, is crucial in democracy. One brief word of context. Ed Luce opens the conversation by asking about a French far-right former TV pundit, Eric Zemmour, who's currently inching closer toward a run for the French presidency. Enjoy the conversation. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here with uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy. It doesn't need an introduction, it's just been given one, but a legend, really, of amongst French intellectuals and of people who highlight what's going on around the world rather than what's happening in their own country. So if I could start, though, with something in your own country, and then we'll get on to the book, uh, The Will to See, your latest book. It's impossible to think of France right now without thinking of um, Eric Zemmour and the rise of this hard-right candidate, and also to think of what you write at the beginning of The Will to See about your father who you know, fought in the French resistance, fought in the Spanish Civil War. When Zemmour talks about Vichy France in such praiseworthy terms as a thing to be proud of, how does that make you feel as a French intellectual, but also the son of your father and as a, as a Jewish French, and of the fact that, bizarrely to some of us, Zemmour is also Jewish, uh, to say this? Honestly, it makes me angry angry and sad for various reasons. Number one, because it is uh, absolutely despicable to speak like that about Vichy, which was pure shame. There is nothing to save about Vichy. All the historians agree on that. We had a French fascism. It was true fascism and nothing can be saved in it. And number two, the fact that uh, it is a Jew who says that has some consequences. First of all, consequence for himself. I don't know how he can look at himself in the mirror in the morning. But for the general public opinion, it makes a difference. I suspect that there are so many people in France who think like this, did not dare to say it. And now they will say, okay, if a Jew son of a family who lost its rights because of Vichy dares to say it, why should I not say it too? So it's a sort of permit of saying bullshit. It is a sort of authorization to go into delirium, which is a heavy responsibility. And this guy, Zemmour, took this responsibility. And what makes me maybe even more sad was is your first words when you say, I cannot think about France without thinking about Zemmour. This is such a disaster, honestly. Generally, I'm proud when people tell me I cannot uh, think about France without thinking of uh, General de Gaulle or thinking of Emmanuel Macron. To hear, and I know you are right, I know you are right, to hear that one cannot think about France without thinking of this uh, little guy 
is a little sad. I hope this dark page will be turned soon. Thank you. That's a very impassioned answer. I mean, we're here at the Faith Angle, I should have mentioned at the beginning, and with and with Josh Good. So in a second, I'll, I'll let Josh chime in. But let me just follow up on that, because I know that you're a big enough name and an influential enough figure to draw blood when you criticize Simor, and that his people do respond to you. And their response <laughs> to you was, and this again sort of dovetails with the focus of your book, was, uh... Levy is always after some Spanish Civil War, you know, international brigade scenario. You're always looking abroad for battles to fight and Don Quixote, you know, missions to go on. Uh, but here we have in France, 10% of our population almost a Muslim, many of them radicalized. Why don't you focus on the problems at home? I focused about that much before them. I'm focusing about uh, radical Islam since the beginning. I devoted books and books to radical Islam. I did fight against radical Islam on the ground. I go to face it, radical Islam, in uh, Kurdistan, uh, in Syria, in Nigeria, Boko Haram and the Fulani, not just in Saint-Germain-des-Prés or in uh, TV on French television. I do fight it on the ground. And uh, as for the Spanish Civil War, it's true that uh, I might give the impression of uh, ready to embrace a new Spanish war. Them, never. If there was a, Spanish, a new Spanish Civil War, they would not give a damn, or they would uh, enlist on the bad side. So I prefer to be me, even with uh, my excesses, maybe uh, I shout too loud, maybe I'm uh, dealing with others' business too much, uh, maybe some can consider that the Kurdish issue is not the business of a French, or the... I don't care. Uh, I prefer to be in my skin than in theirs. It strikes me that the timing of this book is interesting in that we are just coming out of covid Many people for 18 months have been hunkered down, have been focused on their own life, their own families, their own frustration with the polarizing country. And Anne Applebaum had a very nice review of your book uh, this week in The Atlantic talking about COVID as a little bit of a sort of a dynamic alongside what you're calling us to. So why the call to get out? Why the call to look at hotspots around the world that are so hurting? Why did you choose to risk sometimes uh, your own life and the life of your photographers and people with you and being in Nigeria and in Afghanistan? Tell us a little bit about the book and why you chose to go there, sort of striking this Aristotelian mean. Number one, I did that all my life. Since I'm a young man, I write alternatively books of philosophy and books of uh, reportage. All my life, since 50 years, I do both. The most um, difficult uh, academic scholar philosophy on one side and going to ground, to things, to reality on the other side. I always did that. Number two, in the time of COVID, it seemed to me more urgent than ever, precisely because what you said, because everyone was focusing on his family, on himself, 
everyone around me was publishing Instagram photos of his kitchen. Of, and I understand that. Why not? And we were facing a tragedy. The COVID was a real tragedy. But the, one of the consequences of this tragedy, one of them was the huge quantity of death. And in America, I know the price the American people paid the tragedy of COVID. And France also, though less, because we handled the crisis of COVID better probably than the American administration. But another consequence was that we were turning a blind eye to all the others' misery of the world. During one year, it was as if the war in Syria was over. It was as if the tragedy of the Kurdish people did not exist. It was as if there was not a bloodbath and a massacre on large scale in Nigeria. It was as if Mogadishu had been definitely and forever erased from the earth. It was terrible. Nothing else existed but covid the rest of the world went out of the radars, and I was shocked by this idea. I thought that one could do both things, care about his family and care about the rest of the world, wear a mask, which I did, and go to places where there is problem of mask and of COVID, plus problem of hunger, war, or genocide. We can do both. We are human beings. We have a, a complex brain. We, are, we have the capacity of doing both. So, for me, it was more an emergency than ever to go on the field and to remind my human brothers that the world did not stop at the door of their kitchen. You mentioned very eloquently, as just asked you, and you, you just replied, the shrinking effects of the pandemic on our imagination and on our sympathy. You also mentioned how this happened before the pandemic. I think you quote Paul Conroy from the photojournalist in Syria as saying, look, all we need to do is take pictures to show these atrocities, these grotesqueries, and people will respond. But they're not responding. Is this... Um, or at least in the same way they might have done in the past. It's this problem of technology bombarding us, information, sensory overload, that we can't evaluate um, uh, things properly anymore? Or is there some bit larger retreat of empathy going on in the Western world? Everything you say is true at the same time. Number one, excess of information, excess of images. And when, uh, when you have this excess, uh, images neutralize each other. There is a self-neutralization and a mutual devoration, devoration of the images. That is true. You have to find a way through that. You have to do good images. You have to do um, exceptional images. You have to try at least. A few years ago, before COVID, I made a film called Peshmerga. Peshmerga about the Kurds, about the, the bravery, uh, courage, determination of the Kurdish fighters fighting shoulder to shoulder with us against ISIS. In a way, I made it. In my country, at least, the word Peshmerga became, uh, after a few months, a common word, well known by a lot of people, though before that, 
it was nearly unknown. So when you take the risk, when you take the responsibility, when you make your best efforts to do real images, not just the flood of images which go like water, you know, when you really try your best to do special images, when you go in places which have not been filmed before, when you put yourself into circumstances uh, which have not been reviewed. And we, when you bring back uh, images from that, sometimes it makes a difference. And when you do that, not only as a producer of, image, but of images, but also as an, as an artist, let's say, or it's what I try to do. So sometimes an image can, can make the difference. I really believe that. My first, the first time I understood that was when I was in Sarajevo in Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1992. I remember so well, I saw the president of Bosnia in his bunker bombarded by the Serbs. And I told him, I proposed myself for organizing an international brigade for Bangladesh. And he told me, international brigade, what for? I'm sure you are not a good soldier. I can tell you that we have a bunch of good soldiers. What we need is not that. We need the world to know. We need images to be spread. So if you want to be useful, please take a camera, film. And I did that. I made a documentary 1990, from 1992 to 1994. It went to the International Cannes Film Festival. And at this time, he, it had a few effects. And the president of Bosnia, Ali Aizet had a quote. He told me, a good image is worth 1,000 Kalashnikov for us Bosnian, people of Bosnia. And I think he was right. And this is what I tried to do with this new book, The Will to See, and the film which goes with it. I tried to extract out of the reality some images uh, worth uh, 1,000 uh, uh, shields or weapons. What I did, for example, on Mogadishu, which is really a black hole of the world, a dead place, we know nothing about Mogadishu, I'm happy to have done that. What I did about Nigeria, I went in the central belt, in the area of Jos, where uh, Christians are massacred on a large scale uh, by uh, uh, Fulani militias, uh, which are themselves affiliated to Boko Haram, and massacred because Christians, not because uh, farmers against shepherds, all this. No, it is, they are really targeted because of what they are. I brought some images from that. Images for my film, images for my book, and for a series of reportages for Wall Street Journal and others. I'm proud to have done that. And I know that these images can make a difference. I brought them to, to some opinion makers in America and in France, and I cannot tell you more on this mic, but I know it made a difference. And it is just the beginning. It will make even more a difference. Um, can I very quickly slip in a, a devil's advocate point before handing back to Josh? The Afghanistan situation is something we all know very well. We know what the Taliban are. 
We know what they represent. We always knew what they were likely to do if they came back to power. I know you have had a long association. You knew Ahmadjah Massoud, and you've been there. And yet, the United States still withdrew, knowing what was going to happen. Isn't this an example of where we know, but we don't seem to care enough? First of all, yes, this. It is not enough to know. We have to know plus to care. But second, we know and we knew who were the Taliban's, but with a lot of people thought that they were no longer what they were. There was this idea that they changed, that there was a Taliban 2.0, a new sort of Taliban's, more moderate and so on. This was the idea. This was the trick. And I was one of those who said there is no more new Taliban, moderate Taliban than there were uh, moderate Nazis in the 30s. And actually, concretely, the Taliban did not change. And I produced, I, I was in Afghanistan a few months before. This also you will find in my book, The Will to See. You will find the story and in my movie, The Will to See also. I was with the son of Ahmed Shamasud. I was in Panjshir. I was in Kabul. I was uh, in uh, very close to the Taliban. And I had all the, the evidence, documents and proofs that the Taliban were the same. Same practices, same ideology, same uh, ways of punishment of those who disagree. And actually few weeks, few days after that takeover, it was clear that they cheated Americans, they had cheated the Westerners, and they did exactly as they did in the 90s. They tortured a cartoonist, tortured to death, they death-stoned a singer, a folkloric singer, they punished to death the ladies in the villages who pretended to act freely, and so on. They are Exactly the same. And number two, there was another narrative. First of all, new Taliban. Second, opposition between Talibans and Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And my observation, which I document in my, in my work, and alas, I would love to be wrong, but I fear I'm right, is that they are completely linked to Al-Qaeda. It is the same because... The osmosis is so close. The links are so numerous. The family relationships are so intimate that you cannot distinguish the Taliban from Al-Qaeda. So this argument that by embracing Taliban, we could weaken Al-Qaeda was a stupid one. We were again intoxicated by propaganda. So number one, not enough to know you have to believe and to act. But number two, a war of narrative exists. And sometimes you know, you believe to know, and you are just, you don't know. You are led to, to mistake. And this was the case in the last month preceding the retreat of American troops from Kabul. I know that you have written a book about the genius of Judaism. 
And I have a religion question for you after having sort of dipped as you do so marvelously in the book about sort of moral philosophy and moral the philosophers through the age. You just grab one after the other, after the other, after the other in the opening pages of the book and your mind, we get a window into your mind in that way. And then you get on the ground and in going to some of the hardest of the hard places, like in Nigeria, which you were just talking about, for example, you talk about how, you know, the Fulani talk of the Christians as being dogs and the children of dogs and that they are unvarnished in their uh, vengeance because they fear only Allah and are capable, therefore, of anything. And I'm curious to ask, how do you see, you know, true religion, true moral philosophy grounding your observations in the field? Is it the case that, that it's a surprise when there is order, when there is liberty, when there is stability, when there are human rights being respected, because that's the abnormality of history? Or is it instead the case that, you know, if life is more Rousseauian or something, it should be that way if we just get the uh, engineering right? No, I think that um, I'm metaphysically pessimistic and politically optimistic. Metaphysically pessimistic, I mean that, alas, I believe that the normal order of things is the man being a wolf for the other man. The natural, the spontaneous orders order of things is never human rights. It is uh, greed, it is uh, violence, it is um, war. In order to get out of that, to step out of that, you need a huge effort, a huge humanization of the human. Humanization of the human. You need every of us, every single, each of us, to be dragged out of himself and to become higher than himself. And this, the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianism, and Islam, when it is faithful to his message of moderation and so on, helps that. Because it helps us to be grander than we are. It's this idea of a man created at the image of God, this idea of a man or a woman being the copy of a very high and noble uh, God, this idea is a great one because it obliges the man. It obliges the man to be really better than he is. And it impeach him it prevents him from accepting the bad tendency or the tendency to evil, which he also has in himself. It's the danger with various Western interventions that have gone wrong in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Libya. That's the reason why we're so fatigued with compassion. And I mean, you, you famously did support the Libya intervention and you went back there for your book, I think probably some risk to yourself. But has that caused you to reappraise the laws of unintended consequences? From When the West intervenes, it can produce things that are as bad. I know that, that an intervention can produce bad things. And by the way, it is not translated into English, but uh, there is a film which you can see. During the Libyan war, I made a movie and I made a book. My diary, my diary of the month of the Libyan intervention. This risk of things turning badly never quitted my mind. I had 
always that at every minute I had this perspective present in my mind. But number one, it is not a reason not to act. And number two, it is a reason to try to prevent the bad consequences, of course. An intervention, a fulfillment of our moral duty of brotherhood is not just an act. It's a series of acts. You have to continue. It's an effort which lasts some time. So maybe in Libya, the mistake was not to keep the effort, not to be faithful to ourselves. To Maybe the mistake is to have stepped out too easily and to have believed that it was enough to press on a button to make democracy. Of course not. Of course not. So the consequence, as for myself, I always have them in mind. Number two, I know that they can be bad and good. Number three, you have to do your best for the, the good to prevail on the bad. And number four, even if we don't succeed, it is not a reason not to try the day the next time. The country that probably matters most in terms of fatigue is the United States, because the United States is most capable of acting and of leading. You come from a long line of French intellectuals, you know, beginning with de Tocqueville or maybe earlier, who've engaged with America, as you are now. What, and this is, again, before handing back to Josh, this is a kind of double-headed question. What do you think is behind the forces of Trumpism, that middle finger to the world, to that very open, I do not care what happens to foreigners that Trump embodies. What do you think is behind that? And how do you transcend it? How do you get America to be its better self? There is two things. Number one, egoism. And number two, bad appreciation of um, self-interest. Both. Egoism, which is a tendency of humanity to close your eyes, to close your ears. Since uh, the Bible, you have this idea of blinding oneself and uh, deafening uh, oneself not to hear and not to see the misery of, of the next. This is a tendency. And you have to fight against that. And second thing, people don't understand that by acting this way, they are fighting against their own cause. When America behaves as she does in Afghanistan, for example, she lo it loses credibility in the rest of the world. The word of America, the word, the parole, the word of America is weakened when Taiwan is concerned or when North Korea will be concerned, or when uh, you Americans and us Westerners will have to deal with a serious uh, Iranian threat. So in our self-interest, it's always very bad to be weak, and it's always very bad to be cheated by fascist guys, as the Taliban's are, for example. Yeah, we have a friend who came back from a visit with a NATO general after Afghanistan who basically said, uh, with a point of view, I think maybe from, from France or from one of the Western European countries, you know, apparently you guys don't, you aren't willing to act. We know now that you don't have the culture 
to defend your values of liberal democracy in the future. We've taken the calculus and we now know that the main concern we have is China. It's not, not about uh, your role anymore. And that was a, a sobering word. A question about journalism for you. Uh, journalism is a little bit like being a writer of more than 30 books and a, a documentary filmmaker and cr creator. And some of those listening right now in their work as journalists, you know, yearn to be not the guy on social media who tosses comments out into the abyss, but instead to write purposefully, to write consequently. And you have a wonderful pay, uh, conclusion comment. I wonder if I could actually hand it to you to read in your book about the purpose of writing well and the enduring quality of what it what it's all about. Can you tell us, you know, in your own words, and maybe read the pages if you're, if you're willing as well, what the role of a journalist in times of polarization and increasing division ought to be and how you think younger journalists who are coming up a generation behind you could step into the same stream? The role is considerable because the whole world is organized in order to prevent the truth to be said. I can say that. There are so many forces who prevent the truth to be said. There are so many actors who want to lie. There are so many actors who have an interest to lie. So, the work of a journalist, which consists in going behind the lines in order to take, to bite in the things, in order to bring back the truth, is crucial in democracy. And for me, the existence of journalists is as definitional, as crucial for democracy than the existence of a Congress, the existence of uh, separation of powers, you know, the very existence of a body of journalists is a nearly institutional condition of the victory or perseverance of a democracy. So it is so important. As for myself, I'm not exactly a journalist. I'm a writer, maybe less good than most of journalists. I don't have maybe their skill. I don't have their agility. I don't know. They sometimes uh, spend more time than I do. Uh, now people know when I go on a battlefield, people know more or less who I am, which makes my position to be a little more difficult than the young journalist. So I might not be the best journalist. I don't know. But I'm a writer, and writer means that my real stake, my real challenge is to put the pieces of truth which I bring back into um, a proper uh, narrative and to transform it also into acts. And for me, The Will to See, it is the title of my book, does not go without The Will to Do which makes a difference with journalists. Journalists, and this is their highness, this is their virtue, they want to see. They have the religion and their right of objectivity. Me, I like objectivity, but I like also to transform what I see into some tools to act. Nigeria, I want and see, but uh, I devote a great energy and it will go growing in order to help the world to, to react and to act. And as for writing, yes, uh, this is the page you handle to me. It is part of, uh, at the end of the book, I can read it if you want with my broken English. I don't know. It will be better read by you, but I can try. I believe that in a writer, a real one, one who works with his head and his hands, 
with his intelligence and his lungs, his wisdom and desire, one in whom body and soul contend, clash and come to terms on a blank page, one who writes as if life and death depend on it, one who throws himself wholeheartedly with all his might into the book he writes, one who sweats blood and water, and I don't know when one writes like this whether he sweats more in doing the things or relating them, I believe that in such a writer, in that terrible worker, as Rimbaud said, a singular chemistry is at work. Okay, I'm going to ask her, I mean, it seems inappropriate after that poetic and in inspirational <laughs> passage. I'm going to ask a fairly journalistic question about what dominates this town today in terms of its view of the world, and that is China and the Indo-Pacific and China doesn't sort of feature strongly in your recent work, but as you know better than, than most of us, the human suffering there, particularly in amongst Muslim Chinese in the Northwest, in Xinjiang, and the potential for suffering amongst anybody who disputes this regime is a huge humanitarian concern. Forget the geopolitics. How do you deal with that side of China? I spoke about that in my previous book, The Empire and the Five Kings. In front of China, we are stronger than we think. If we wanted, if we really stood by our values, if we were really faithful to our creed, we would have some leverage on China. And I'm always angry when I see us so weak in front of China, as if they were already the masters of the world. They are not. America is still here. Europe is still here. But under one condition, that we are proud of our values and that we stand by our creed. This is crucial in the years to come in the ideological battle with China. That seems like a great note to end it on and a very relevant one. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Levy. That Thank was... you, Mr. Luce. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Josh. Faith Angle connects mainstream journalists on both sides of the Atlantic with exceptional scholars and clerics. Thanks for listening. <laughs>